Welcome. Welcome to the show. Uh, Today, my guest is Nick Martin. Nick is the co-founder of a company called Direct, and we're going to be learning all about how media and entertainment publishers are using messaging as part of their content strategy. Now, you hear a lot about conversational AI and large language models, generative AI, and all this kind of funky stuff, uh, which we cover every single week on the podcast. Uh, But a lot of that conversation is around customer service, customer experience, and ways in which we can kind of help businesses solve some of those problems that they have around capacity management and stuff like that and customer experience. Uh, But Nick's been working for, for a long time with Direct and working with, as I said, media and entertainment companies using the same technology but applying it to a slightly different use case so we're going to learn we're going to learn how that's going uh, and all that stuff very shortly um, but before i do that i need to tell you about the webinar that we're doing tomorrow in fact actually by the time you hear this it may actually be today or maybe it could have actually been yesterday so if it was yesterday if you're listening to this after thursday you can still watch it on replay which is the webinar we're doing with ServiceBot, which is all around how to integrate large language models into your conversational ai setup if you're using the traditional intent-based nlu system this webinar is going to show you three practical applications where you can integrate large language models into your setup to improve the effectiveness of it if you're listening in live right now on youtube or linkedin you can go to vux.world click on the events tab and you can sign up for that right now all right uh okay so without further ado ladies and gentlemen please welcome nick martin nick welcome to vux world my friend thanks for having me and good plug yeah yeah thank you thank you uh appreciate it so where where are you where are you dialing in from now uh so i'm calling in from new york city new york nice new york new york i uh i was in new york very briefly um two weeks ago Flying back from Washington, I actually ended up getting the train back from New York. Uh, sorry, train to New York from Washington because I was caught in all kinds of storms and all that sort of stuff around Washington. So I very briefly got to see New York. I came out of like Penn Station into nice. a taxi and then drove to the airport. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't fully feel it. It's yeah. a fun train. I've done that same DC to New York and, and vice versa. It's a it's an easy trip. Yeah, it's not bad actually. Yeah, it was it was quite good. It was nice. Three hours. The Amtrak trains, very different yeah. to the trains in the UK. You know, beasts they are, absolute beasts. But uh, but yeah, cool. Thank you for for joining me. And by the way, boys and girls, if you're tuning in uh, live, feel free to stick any questions you might have for Nick in the comments. There, we'll do our very best to to put them to Nick as we go on. But Nick, maybe we can kick off by giving us a bit of a introduction and, and tell us a bit about yourself and a bit about direct. Yeah, sure. So we started Direct uh, several years ago based on the belief that chat as a medium uh, would become the primary way that consumers consume, interact, and engage with content. Uh, And so we built a platform to help publishers build for that world and that future, which in the last 12 months in the wake of ChatGPT, I think, has really become mainstream and something everybody's pretty aware of. And so in a nutshell, Direct is a chatbot publishing platform. The world's best media brands from Vogue to GQ to Wired, Men's Health, ESPN, a bunch of others, use our platform to create their own conversational AI experience, their own chatbot, which is trained exclusively on their content, and then distribute that bot in various messaging and chat apps. We're now launching that on social platforms, and we're also working to deploy that on publishers' websites as well, so that they can grow their audience, deepen engagement, and grow revenue, all through chat in a variety of ways. Nice. I like it. So where did it come from then? What was the thing that led to, you know, thinking about do starting direct and when, when was that? Yeah. So it was late 2017. Um, 
maybe a year removed from the first chatbot hype cycle, um, which you probably remember and some of the listeners might. And my partner in the business, one of my co-founders, John Duffy, who's our CEO, he was running a business at the time called 3C Interactive, which was subsequently acquired. And 3C was powering chatbots for the Fortune 500, big retailers, travel, hospitality banks, um, similar to the, the verticals that I think a lot of your guests service today. And so they worked with Walgreens and Best Buy uh, and businesses that wanted to sell products to customers, things of that, things of that nature. Um, and they had a meeting with the weather company, which is a media business. And the feedback was, hey, we love chat. We understand consumers spend so much time in messaging and, and the main way everybody communicates online today is through chat. Uh, but we're a media business and chat doesn't work for us. There's no business model that supports how we make money, which is advertising. Um, these user experiences are geared towards selling a product or servicing a customer service issue. Um, those are things that don't tend to apply generally to most content creators. And so that sort of kicked off the thinking around like, wow, there needs to be a solution for this vertical to take advantage of chat as an interface and experience the way everybody else already had started to. Again, before all the LM hype cycle of the last 12 months, like chat's been around for quite some time and, and it's driven meaningful results for tons of businesses in a lot of ways. And so that was sort of the, the nugget, the insight on, wow, the entire media landscape, like all of the content creators are underserved. They don't have the tools they need. Uh, and then you really have to build with that intent, that purpose in mind in order to service them. So that was kind of how we got started, and we've been at it for a couple of years, and they're having some success. Nice. And so, would you describe the experience of the solutions that kind of your clients have deployed being akin to kind of like an Alexa-style experience? Like you mentioned there, that like the original wave of chatbots and stuff like that was was around, you know, Facebook Messenger, and and that was kind of <clears throat> led to to the rise of Alexa, which at the same time there was chatbots bubbling under the surface. And so then we kind of arrived today where it's like every channel is conversational and although not every business is utilizing every channel, there's still a lot of conversational solutions out there. A lot of them do focus on that customer experience, customer service sort of use cases. But Alexa was different because that was really about engagement. It was really about content and distribution. A lot of radio stations were on there. A lot of media outlets were trying different ways of creating kind of purposeful content for that channel. And people were using Alexa to consume media. Whereas people, the mental model, I don't know if this is true or not, but the mental model I imagine many have is that chatbots are there to help them solve problems and do customer service. I'm just trying to think about the, the mental model and the kind of use cases that that your clients are deploying and whether it's similar to Alexa, where the chat is the destination or whether it's yeah. whether, whether the mental model is totally different. Well, I think the, the frame of mind and the purpose of using chat is, is a hundred percent different um, to the point you made. Like, I think there's a preconceived notion or perception that like chat is meant for customer service and solving a, a problem. And the reason for that is because that was the initial use case that you could deliver and do a good job of, five, six, seven years ago. So that's been proliferating across the web and across all these different platforms for a long time. Um, But yeah, it doesn't translate to a content business. A lot of our content publisher partners literally do not have a customer service operation. Maybe they have a catch-all email that gets forwarded to somebody in ops. Maybe they have one person, but they certainly don't have a built-out live agent staff the way a retailer, a hotel, a bank, a financial institution would. Um, And so they look at it the same way, like they're not in a lot of cases trying to sell a product to a customer. 
They're trying to engage that audience, right? And keep them on their site or in their app or consuming their content in one form or another um, for as long as they can. And, and in a lot of cases, they want to monetize that audience with advertising. And so they view almost anything they do as an effort to try to increase reader engagement, time on site, um, total audience size, traffic, those types of metrics, which are really different than how somebody who's building for like customer service thinks about it. Um, you can throw out as a hypothesis that like in general, the approach with a customer service chatbot is to have as short of a conversation as possible, right? I'm trying to solve my customer's issue. They are only talking to me because they have a problem. We want to resolve that as quickly as we can. We don't want that conversation to go on for longer than it needs to. That would make a ton of sense in that scenario. If you're a publisher, your motivation is the opposite. You want to talk to your user and your reader for as long as possible. You want to have as engaging of a conversation as you can. You want to keep them around deep in the relationship, get to know them so that you can personalize the experience for them in the future, things of that nature. And so, yeah, it's very, very different. Um, as it relates to Alexa, there's certainly some stark differences in our approach. Like we're really focused on text-based content. So all of our chat experiences we power are through you know, messaging channels, websites, apps, not voice interfaces. Uh, we are optimistic about the voice interface over the medium term. It's not something we're investing in right now. The Alexa experiment, I think, was interesting. And I, I think there's probably a second wave of all the initial assistance that will, you know, sort of refresh in the coming year, I would assume. Um but it, voice is a very different experience. The, the reason a user engages with it, where they are when they engage with it, it's quite different. And then despite Amazon scale, I think Alexa was really subscale for, for quite some time. It might still be. I don't know the data off the top of my head. The last time I had, had looked at data, it suggested maybe 50 million homes, which sound big and, and not to suggest that that isn't meaningful. Um, but in contrast to where we started, which was inside of messaging apps, which reached 5.3 billion unique users, every single phone comes with a messaging app pre-installed. It's the main way everybody communicates. There's almost 10 times as much messaging volume per day as there is Google search volume. And so our lens was like, wow, this is actually one of the biggest channels in the world and it's untapped. There's not a way for publishers to access those audiences and, and build those experiences. Um, and I'm not sure that Alexa necessarily is the same in that regard, but I, I wouldn't, you know, say that we're the experts on voice yet. It's something that we've thought of as more of a medium to long-term opportunity. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I suppose what I was getting at there is is the sort of mental model of the user in terms of like hmm. the the mental model that you that a, a, a user adopts when they invoke Alexa is one of yes, kind of help me get some stuff done like setting times or whatever, but, but like play the radio and now I'll have a lean back kind right. of content consumption experience and people have at least some degree of awareness, at least those that use Alexa or those that still use Alexa have some kind of awareness around like the purpose of this is, is in part content. Whereas when you go to a website, obviously if you go to a content-based website, then that is the purpose of you being there on the website is to consume content. It's more sure. about the mental model of the chat widget being there and people understanding that actually this is where I can go to deepen my understanding of the topic area or ask further questions about the topic area or access further content from a educational or infotainment perspective or whatever, as opposed to from customer service, if that makes sense. So I suppose maybe another another way of, of phrasing the question might be, how have your customers seen or encouraged the adoption of that chat content-based experience? 
Yeah, so that's a great question, and that makes a ton of sense. Um, and it's a valid point, right? Like the end consumer in every other context, I think, use a chat window as this might be customer service. Uh, now, obviously, like as you mentioned, we're living either on a publisher's property or when we're in you know, an off-platform channel, a messaging app, a social media platform, uh, it's a branded experience, right? So you're chatting with the publisher's brand, Vogue, ESPN, not direct, right? And so as a pre- as sort of a, a, a starting point, the user knows, like, I'm engaging with a content provider because I'm interested in content in some regard. Um, the important thing, it's so funny how simple sometimes, like, the most valuable features or capabilities can be, is just the initial message, right? It's having the welcome message. So when the user gets to the page, the bot's first thing they does, it does is manage the expectations of the user, right? Set them, help them understand what this is. So, hey, I'm the publisher's AI assistant. I can help you find relevant articles, answer questions you might have. And then we have a, a feature we call smart prompts, which is suggest basically a suggested question that the user can ask. So we'll we'll sort of pre-populate these so the user doesn't have to type their own question if they don't want to. It provides a really natural jumping off point to make it obvious how to engage with the experience. Um, if you've played with what Bing has done with Bing Chat, it's relatively similar uh, to the way they'll suggest searches. And so those types of things where one, immediately have the bot introduce itself and explain to the user what it can and can't do, and then guide them instead of just being sort of an open-ended text box, guide them into the experiences that you want to drive. So another example here, we're rolling out quizzes where we will automatically generate quizzes for our publishers based on the stories they've written and then make those available to the user so every story can be an interactive, fun experience. Um, The bot can guide users into that. They don't have to wait for the user to go, by the way, can I take a quiz? You know, hey, you seem like you know a lot about the New York Jets take this quiz to see where you rank amongst other Jets fans on our site, right? And, and so the bot, especially because it's a communicative channel, right, it is a two-way thing, the onus, we think, is really on that chat experience to help the user understand what to expect. And then, you know, you fast forward not that long, six months, 12 months, 18 months, um, we think that the sort of natural predisposition to assume it's customer service will not necessarily go away, but at least dissipate. Like I think consumers are becoming very quickly educated that these chatbots can do a whole lot more. And I think that's indicative, like there are some early data around chat GPTs, like number one use case actually being entertainment-based. Obviously everybody has seen what's happening around code, copywriting, all of these other things that were not happening a year ago. And so I think it's, it's a pretty quick evolution with how fast things are moving for the consumer to enter these chat experiences the way they enter a website or an app, right? They, they don't think all websites or all apps do one thing. They go into it with some context from why they got there in the first place, right? What was the intent behind visiting this experience? Um, and then in engaging with that experience, they better understand how to use it and, and what they can and can't do. Yeah, that makes sense. And there's a there's a framework uh, that um, we've spoken about a lot in the past when when we used to talk about Alexa a lot, which is the the kind of like maturity that platforms go through on their way to kind of mass adoption. And and the first phase is very much a novelty phase. Like if you look at Alexa, all of the first round of skills were like dad jokes, fart skills and stuff like that. You know, it's all just like novelty. Yeah, exactly. Exactly the same as that. Yeah. You know, you drink the beer on the iPhone. It's all fun. And then it moves into more sort of like productivity based stuff, which ChatGPT seems to have gotten to fairly quickly. 
because um, that's where the real sort of value is. Not that there isn't value in, in entertainment, but the value in entertainment is more kind of like keeping people happy for a period of time, whereas helping people get stuff done and be productive is is kind of where like people can save time as opposed to spend time differently. And so like ChatGPT has hit that mark fairly quickly um, with the likes of the code assistance that Microsoft has and things like that. Um, helping people to write emails and do those various sort of tasks. And then, and then the third phase, if all goes well, which Alexa didn't quite reach, is monetization. So uh-huh. if you can if you can if you can get a user group, a base of users that have gone through that let's explore it because it's fun phase, into let's build stuff that helps us be productive, then how do we sort of monetize it? That's the sort of like the key really. And Alexa didn't really sort of make it past past that. Um but in terms of you mentioned ChatGPT a few times, how how have these tools, large language models, generative AI, how have they impacted what you do? You said you said you started in 2017. You know, I think that was the year the Transformer was kind of created, actually. So you've kind of, you know, and and also in a messaging channel where brevity is also potentially key. Um, you know, if you look at some of the interactions with ChatGPT, it's giving you back essays. You know, like how how have you kind of first of all, how has it impacted what you do at Direct? So I, I think like everybody, it's impacted us quite tremendously um, in a ton of positive ways. Maybe interestingly, more so than like the product capabilities or the technology, which is phenomenal, and I and I think everybody is at least your audience is probably quite familiar with at this juncture. The sentiment around it, I think, is what's been so meaningful. So chat becoming a boardroom conversation, becoming something that is transforming the core of the way we interact with everything online. So you have Google and Microsoft both reinventing search experiences to be chat-based, right? At different scales and at different levels, but they're certainly already here and they're definitely going to grow. And so that's such a major part of what happens online is search. You go, well, if that's becoming chat-based, what else is going to? And then you look at what's happening in social and you see things like my AI on Snap, which I believe had about 150 million users almost out at the gate, billions of messages or billion plus messages. Um, and at least from their reporting, a tremendous success. And then the likes of Instagram and TikTok and pretty much everybody else that has scale on the internet has either rolled out or announced plans to roll out their own chat experience for one purpose or another. So if you follow that trend line out, just like not that far off into the future, you look at a world where chat really is becoming this primary mechanism for the consumer to discover and engage with content. And so for us as a company that's trying to help the world's independent creators and publishers thrive in a chat-based world, that's been really meaningful because all of a sudden, chat became this boardroom strategic initiative where it's part of the broader generative AI conversation. It's not the only thing, but it's a meaningful thing because it's user facing and everything else online, more or less search and social, which are the two big categories are already making these meaningful steps forward towards it. And so that's made a big difference. I think for our customers who championed us early and said, hey, we believe in this future of chat. We want to have a chat experience, even if it's 2021, and maybe the experience is more limited than what we all use today because of where the technology was at the time. Um, I think it's helped them in that regard, you know, fast forward to now going, yeah, see, chat is a thing, and this is why we're already doing it, and, we, and we've been working on this, and we've been building audiences around it. Um, but then also for net new opportunities where, 
the conversation is happening at the C level, like that obviously opens up a lot of doors and a lot of opportunities for us as a business. And then from a product perspective, the things we can do and the speed at which we can do them, I, I think is quite meaningful. And so whether that's the quiz example I gave you earlier, which would have been really difficult to do at scale in a really compelling way without generative AI, um, there were just a lot of limitations around what you could do with the one best-in-class NLP tools and platforms that we've been building on for years. Um, and certainly on the other end of the spectrum, like you've probably seen a lot of companies that were doing rules-based sort of decision tree chatbots, almost impossible to execute with that approach at scale in a content first environment. And so it's really been a paradigm shift um, for what we think is like maybe going to become the most meaningful transition from a consumer behavior in the last 15 years. And it's affected everything from the number of companies that are trying to invest in the space, the people at those companies that are thinking about it, and the experiences that they're willing to deploy. I think what hasn't changed, and this maybe is uh, obvious, maybe it's not, at least for us, like we are really focused on keeping the publishers in control, right? And so if you think about the last 20 years, they were disintermediated from their audience by way of search and by way of social. We work really hard to help them reconnect with their audiences and build direct relationships. But also beyond, behind that, like at the platform level, you might see a publisher who has a generative AI policy saying we won't touch it whatsoever. You might have some saying we'll use it for internal workflows, but not user facing. And you might have some that say, hey, we, we want to lean in and innovate and be first and learn. And this is where the world's going. We're going. We've designed a platform so that any publisher at any level on that spectrum from we're not ready for generative AI to like we want best in class can use the platform without compromising against their own internal decisions around generative AI at large, meaning you can turn on and off how much conversational AI or generative capabilities are in your chat experience, right? So you're not outsourcing everything and sort of being hands-off. You have the ability to go, hey, we like uh, generative AI that creates experiences for us, but we have the ability to manually approve and edit and publish, right? So that's sort of down the middle. Or you can say, we want our own version of ChatGPT. We want it to be free-form and open-ended. We understand we can't control every part of that, but we want to have the mechanism to retrain and improve over time. So that level, I think, of thoughtfulness is certainly new, and that's, I think, largely a derivative of how significant the capabilities are. Um, and you can get it wrong, right? Like, you've seen all these stories of people who, not just with chat, but with generative AI in general, who maybe don't take a thoughtful approach and, and get backlash publicly, um, whether that's on Twitter or in the press, because the experience either didn't live up to expectations or was misleading or, or all these things. And so we work really hard to solve that. And I think our starting point being that we were in chat before the LLMs got really popular last November has helped us because we've always been building with that in mind, like allowing the publisher to have full control. And so that was uh, also meaningful. Mm, that makes sense. Um, yeah, so... so I mean, yeah, some people have got it wrong, and you meant you mentioned the Snapchat My AI. There's some, there's some uh, instances yeah. where that's got things spectacularly wrong. Um, but like the, the the way that these companies are moving, like Snapchat and Facebook and Bing, Microsoft, they are creating kind of. I mean, essentially, it's what it's what we forecast and what we're hoping for when Alexa came around that was the promise right. is that everyone would then have their own assistant it's just that it didn't transpire that way because 
for whatever reason, people didn't really invest in Alexa and the impetus wasn't really there for people to go and build their own apart from just create point solutions for specific problems like customer service. Whereas and what's good about... Was, why do you think people didn't jump on that wave back then? Um, I don't know, to be honest. It was, it's, it's, um, it was seen as an experiment, certainly from Alexa's perspective. You mentioned earlier on, like, you know, if Alexa reaches 50 million households, that's nothing compared to the number of people that use a website or that use apps or that use messaging, you know, so the volume isn't quite there. The effort of creating a, what was a skill back then to make a really good one was quite a high effort um, because it's not just the NLU, which is harder because you didn't really get vis- visibility from Amazon around like the intricacies of the NLU, so you couldn't tune it properly. But also it had a very heavy audio component because it was voice only in most instances, so you had to put a lot of effort into making the audio sound right, otherwise everything just sounded terrible and people wouldn't use it. And so it was a hard job to get companies to take a chance on it because they saw it as an experimentation. But then because that platform hadn't necessarily been proven out, it wasn't as if like loads and loads of brands were having wild success. One or two brands had success, but it wasn't common. And so even though the underlying technology, you can talk to people all day long about the underlying technology and how you could use it in other areas. But if, if if the example of the technology packaged together isn't delivering, then what trust do I have in the underlying technology? Whereas the difference here is that the package together technology in ChatGPT and BARD and Claude, the package together technology works and therefore there's more interest in people saying, okay, well, what technology is that and how can I use it? That's my sort of like little theory. I could be wrong. Like, I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think in general, right, like when you have friction, it slows things down and and whatever you can do to remove that friction speeds that up. And and that's an obvious Mm. thing to say, but we had to do this in the early days of our business. Like we were really intentional about with when chat similar to Alexa in 2018 or 19 was not the hot thing in the moment. Like it was me, it was maybe a forcing function for us. I don't think we thought of it that way, but in hindsight, I think you could argue it was to create opportunities in chat where there was effectively no friction for our our publishers. Um, getting to know friction is really hard. There's always something, right? At a minimum, if you want to like debate, oh, I had to answer an email. I had to take a phone call. I had to sign the contract. Um, and not to trivialize the effort of, of, of procurement cycle, but in large part, we gave our publishers an opportunity to take advantage of chat where there was no development resources, no editorial resources, no commercial resources. And by stripping away all of that, you open up the opportunity for people to have something to try something. And I think that helped us get to a meaningful point on the Alexa front. I do wonder like how difficult it was uh, either directly with Alexa or just with platforms on top of it to create that experience. And then how much of that is just because it's voice um, and that the, the behavior was emergent. Like, I think that's really a stark difference is voice to application. That was completely emergent. Whereas like chat to application has existed for a long time, like smarter child, on AIM when I was a kid, it was like the most popular thing. And that was a chatbot. And honestly, that chatbot up until a year ago was better than most chatbots still decades later. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think that matters a lot. Like what is the foundational consumer behavior you're building on top of? And certainly people talk to one another and they talk on the phone and maybe they'll talk to an automated support box. They have to, but learning how to interact with those voice assistants, like me personally, as a user, it wasn't obvious to me, 
why I would continue to use Alexa on a day-to-day basis. And I didn't know, I didn't feel as though that experience, uh, again, this is a dated uh, point of view at least, was uh, doing a great job at discovery and helping me understand things I could do with it, especially with the lack of a visual interface. Like once I check the weather, once I play my music, right, how do I find your skills? How do I engage with them? And then the other thing that, that stood out when we were doing research on this was there's actually a really significant Slack community of Alexa skill developers, independent developers. And they would uh, oftentimes uh, talk about what they refer to as the snow cone problem, which was the idea that you couldn't make enough money with an Alexa skill to pay for a snow cone. And so it's the monetization uh, aspect that you pointed out earlier on. Um, and without that, without a path to monetization, which is another thing we had to build, like, it's really hard to get people to do anything without the right incentive. And so I don't feel like I have the, the right answer as to maybe what held it back. I do feel bullish on it again over the, maybe the near term, definitely the medium term. Like I, I would expect a complete overhaul. I know some have already announced they're doing this of these voice assistants. Um, and I think they'll get way better. And I think especially TBD on, on, on Amazon, but I think especially with, with Apple and Google where they can integrate that into the mobile experience a lot of levers to pull by way of driving discovery and distribution that I do think will make that a really compelling channel. Yeah, it could be. I, I still have faith. It, I mean, we've we've, we've we've spoke about this enough times on the podcast around the, the challenges of one, discoverability, as you mentioned, two, engagement in terms of getting people to return was an issue, and then three, monetization doesn't follow if you can't do those two things. But um, And that's fair enough. But like, what, what I was kind of saying is that like, the rise of Alexa was the first time, really. I know there was Siri slightly beforehand, but Alexa kind of enthused people to start thinking about, well, what would it be like if I had an assistant? You know, mm-hmm. the, the car, the, the car motor vehicle companies were quicker to jump on that. Do you know, like Volvos and Fords of the world putting their kind of assistants in their vehicles, BMW, Mercedes, and all that kind of stuff. They kind of had a perfect use case to create that assistant, where you can ask it to do something and it'll do it for you. Some of the brands had a bit of a stab at doing it, you know, like um, Bank of America and Capital One and BBC, and they all had a stab at doing their own version of the assistant. But, um, I mean, to be fair, some of them did did fairly well. Um, But it didn't really capture the imagination of everybody. Now Mm. it seems to have kind of done that with ChatGPT and and large language models, generative AI. It, It seems to have got people thinking about, well, what would it be like if I had that? for my business, you know, being able to talk about my business, all that kind of stuff. And so that's kind of where it's it's kind of got people people's imagination open slightly. So from your perspective, coming from it from a messaging first position, moving into chat based around content, do you see direct as being uh, a company that enables businesses to create engaging experiences with their content from the point of view of like a a better search experience or sort of like, you know, using retrieval augmented generation to search across squares of historic archive archive content to answer questions? Or do you see it moving more or being a provider of the, the more sort of my AI Snapchat kind of experience where technically it's kind of content if you like, but it's not really drawing upon content it's more generating some form of light content in order to have conversations do you know what i'm saying like one is kind of entertainment based you could use content in that in that environment but whereas the other one is very much using the content you've got using the technology to get at that content and then serve it 
Yeah, I you know I, I would probably first just say I don't know that those are binary, and I don't know that they're they're black and white. It's one or the other. Um, but forced to choose, I, I think we we're much closer to the former than the latter in the sense of the experiences that we power and that we're continuing to invest in being able to to build out are always starting from a place of how do we best take advantage of our publisher's content, which is written by humans. And then we think that's a really important ingredient here and leverage what's happening around AI and make it really easy for the publisher to maybe convert their content, maybe augment their content. Um, but in one form or another, enhance it, make the experience more interactive, more user-friendly, more personalized, more relevant through chat as the interface that, that, we're building around. And so in that sense, like content is the the core of it, right? It's about the stories you've written, the the things your journalists have researched, the articles you're publishing, and the, the topics that your readers are already on your site for, right? Like you already have this audience. And certainly a big part of what we do is getting you a new audience by distributing these chatbots in other platforms where maybe you didn't have a presence before because these are chat endemic environments like a messaging app, as you referenced. Um, now, at the same time, again, it, it, things are moving so quickly here and the opportunities are so broad. Like there is sort of a spectrum, I think, between the example A and then this like companion assistant version of my AI or, or chat GPT or what like the promise, I think, of Siri and Alexa was back in the day. And I do think things can move that direction, um, even for, for content companies. And we've had some publisher partners who have told us they view this as their assistant for their content, a librarian that's personalized to every reader. Mm -hmm. we, we've gotten those analogies in sort of private meetings from publishers that we're working with and talking to. Um, and there's there's ways to take advantage of our platform to, to deliver that experience. I do think it's still different than what you would see from a my AI on Snap, where it's more or less, and not to diminish it, I think they've done tremendously well, despite some of the challenges that, that you alluded to. Um, it's more or less the ChatGPT experience, right? It's a, it's a wrapper on an LLM. It's broad and horizontal. It's anything that was made available in training data from the public internet. We refine what we do to the publisher's content. So it's specific and targeted and accurate. Um, but we're also not trying to drive the, I'm your best friend, tell me about your problems, let me recommend a restaurant to you. If you're chatting with a sports publisher, you're not going to ask them for where to go get pizza Friday night, right? Um, but you can imagine over time, maybe that sports publisher does help you find the best sports bars to watch the game, and maybe there's a commercial opportunity underneath that by way of referral or advertising or otherwise, and so it'll continue to evolve. I think if you look at what's happening in the very, very early days around the agent behavior, like that also becomes quite compelling and, and might put a premium on anyone who can capture audience at top of funnel. If these agents start actually executing tasks underneath mm -hmm. it, which they're going to be able to do pretty quickly here. Um, but that's not ready for prime time for our types of publishers, the world's biggest, you know, most reputable brands just yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and so a lot of your publishers, like the the large publishers, they've got lots of different ways of monetizing. You know what they do. There's, some of them are subscription based. You mentioned like ESPN and so they've got like TV channels and subscriptions and all kinds of stuff going on. Um, but you're talking about their kind of like removing the middle person out of the equation, giving power back to the publishers and stuff like that. And I'm pretty sure last time we spoke, you were talking about some sort of in chat monetization. 
in chat ads, yeah. something like that, were you? Yeah, so that actually goes all the way back to the inception of the business where it was a meeting with a major media organization. Like, our business model isn't supported in this format. Like chat doesn't allow us to monetize the way we monetize. Uh, and so for publishers in general, again, there's a couple nuances here and there, but there's two main ways publishers make money. Advertising and subscriptions, right? Those are the, the two core ways. And so out of the box with our platform, publishers have access to an in-chat advertising experience. And what that means is make it really easy to serve relevant ads to the users as they're chatting. Now, for us as a business, strategically, monetization uh, was something we didn't focus on in the early days. So we built out the platform. We started running in, in the U.S. at meaningful scale, millions of ads a month, um, to test the platform, to understand user behavior, to get some baselines, and also to show publishers, like, to the point on Alexa uh, several minutes ago, here's the path to monetization, right? So if it's 2020 and you're thinking about chat and you're like, okay, we're going to remove all the friction. We're going to get you started. We're going to get you a new audience, but we can also show you tangibly with a real product, how we'll monetize this in the future. But day one, let's focus on the user experience. Let's focus on building the audience. Let's focus on engagement. Monetization will come underneath that. And a big part of what we do is drive chat audiences back to our publisher's properties, which is effectively indirect monetization for them as well. But having the ability to actually serve the ads was quite meaningful. We're in early pilots with a couple of the, the leading partners in the advertising space right now about making those available more broadly. And we work hand in hand with all of our publishers around how and when to introduce these experiences. So that's part one, third party advertising. So if you make your money from ads and you take our chat and put it on your site and you want to sell that inventory to your existing advertisers or integrate your existing ad stack, like we make that easy to do and we're supportive of that because we are our objective is to grow your business, grow your audience, grow your revenue. Part two is subscriptions, which we take advantage of in a similar form. So instead of a third-party ad, so instead of an ESPN running an ad for Nike, if ESPN or any publisher wanted to sell their premium content subscription – whether that's just a paywall service or some other program, we make it simple for them to, with logic and intelligence, go, hey, if the user has interacted with me for a certain amount of time about a certain topic, show them an offer to sign up for my premium subscription. So driving that conversion for them in chat. And I imagine some of your guests, the ones who focus more on marketing and conversational commerce, have had tons of incredible data around how effective chat as a medium is at, at conversions, whether that's for e-commerce or anything else. And so we're just making it easy for the publisher to take advantage of that. But in a nutshell, the same platform powering the actual user experience is comes out of the box with the ability to insert ads that will generate revenue for you from a third-party advertiser or allow you to sell your own subscription to that user while they're engaged with the chat mm, That makes sense. And, and the, fir- the first party kind of, part i can sort of see i can i think i can understand how that would look because that that even can be as simple as actually having it part of the conversation you know a, a prompt in the conversation which is all you know it looks like you, you visit this website regularly and this and the other do you want to consider a subscription here's 50 percent off your first three months or whatever like that seems to be an easy conversation to have how does the third party ads kind of manifest itself within the ui is it kind of like a an image or some sort of like carousel that comes in between conversational turns? Like, is it part of the dialogue? Like, how does it actually 
work? Yeah, it's a great question. There's a really wide breadth of the advertising experiences that we could deliver and that over time we probably will deliver. I'll give you one example of something that we do today just to, to lock in on something specific. So you, re- you referenced carousels as a perfect example. We have the ability when a carousel is delivered to a user. So if for example, you were engaging with a uh, publisher that covers finance and the stock market. And you might ask, hey, show me the top five stories about what's happening in the IPO market this month. And it sends you a carousel of five articles. We can dynamically serve an ad in between cards three and four. And we can know that you asked for stories uh, about the IPO market, right? In a way that's privacy safe and completely anonymized and go, okay, the user, no different than if you're on a website using contextual advertising to go, this article is about the Clavio IPO, which happens, you know, down the street here couple minutes ago. Uh, this user is clearly interested in that. And we want to show them an ad for, again, it could be Robinhood app. It could be something else in FinServe. Um, but the user experience there being, I'm scrolling through carousels. There's a native format that looks just like the stories I'm reading. Same height, same you know size of image, same call to action button, just happens to be an advertisement. So that's one example. Obviously, like as you start seeing what's happening with search becoming chat based, and now these chatbots are serving relevant ads based on the user intent. Like that's something we think is going to be really meaningful for publishers because there is, while it's not the whole thing, there's some part of these user experiences which naturally are search or at least are search adjacent, right? Depending on what the user intent actually is, and we think that's going to allow publishers over time to capture more meaningful advertising revenue because they're going to get those intent signals directly. Whereas like today I might go to GQ, look at a bunch of pictures of what guys in the NBA walked into the game last night wearing. And then I leave and go to Google and search for the jacket. And that search ad goes to Google from the brand that wants to sell me the jacket. Whereas you could imagine if I'm on GQ tomorrow and I'm reading that same article, I'd go, Hey GQ, what, what jacket is that? Where can I get it? And if you pull that advertising experience there, then all of a sudden GQ, instead of just having the awareness and driving the consideration for the brand, also can capture the intent and then monetize it more effectively than maybe they can today because today that search experience is limited to just the two or three meaningful search companies. Um, So anyways, there's a long roadmap for us in terms of the right way to do monetization. Our guiding principle has always been one, make sure it's a great user experience. Two, make sure we're always privacy conscious and oriented in how we do it. But three, also ensure that our approach aligns with how publishers view their advertising business today and is supportive of it. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the, the GQ example is interesting. There's a company called Disruptal. I think it might have been acquired now, actually. Um, they were on the podcast a few years back and they had a platform that did something similar and that allowed, like, for example, let's say you're watching Netflix and James Bond is playing and there's a scene in James Bond where he's wearing a specific type of watch and you could just get your remote, open a microphone, like, hey, what watch is that? And then it would be able to serve you an ad basically for that specific watch. It sounds like a very similar thing. I think they were acquired. The The challenge there is that that requires a big kind of shared ad network behind the scenes where all of the brands would be using and then the ads would be served almost like a Google Ads kind of way whereby you know, you go on one website, they set a pixel, you were looking at something, three websites later, you're seeing the Google ad for it, the way that uh, something, some middle layer like that. Another way of, of 
thinking about it is that on Google itself, via a bard, or maybe it's in ChatGPT via plugins of some description, when you go there and you search for that jacket, you have some kind of way of surfacing there. So the GQ example would be that you on GQ, you're reading that ad, maybe you have a conversation with the chatbot, you then go to Google, you talk it to Bad, hey, I saw this jacket on GQ, show me what that jacket might be and whatever. But then you then get passed across potentially to the GQ assistant to continue the dialogue with GQ. And that sort of whole idea of interoperability and assistance handing over to assistants and stuff like that, again, was something born, at least my first experience of, of that idea was in the Alexa world where Alexa would hand over to Google Assistant or to Siri or one yeah. level deeper than that would be that a weather skill would hand over to another skill or something like that, you know. And we, we I remember seeing when Google changed the voice search on Google Chrome and it was rumoured that it was going to be replacing voice search on Chrome with Google Assistant. That was the article I wrote in 2020, which was like, this is the beginning of search turning into conversations, turning into engagement with third-party branded assistants. Yeah, that obviously I didn't transpire, that. but at least with BARD and, and ChatGPT and plugins, again, all things come back around, but it, that potential is still there now, do you think? A hundred percent. And I think it certainly includes the ones you mentioned, ChatGPT, BARD, you know, Claw, and the ones that don't yet necessarily exist, but, but might become winners in the future. Like that main set of these sort of mass market chatbots. I also think, and we refer to this internally as bot to bot, right? So, so skill to skill, bot to bot, right? We think that that is going to be a very significant at scale network. And it's not going to be just these three bots with their three sets of plugins we think it's likely there's going to be millions of bots that interconnect with each other and hand off to each other or refer to each other in an almost unimaginable number of scenarios based on what the user wants and where there's the right incentive for the bot to do so. Um, but that's going to become really meaningful for one, like the user experience. So if I'm even like, in the example you gave, if somebody was going to leave GQ and then go to Google and search for it, which is ha obviously that happens, that's how we all use the internet today, and find something, even if you find it on Instagram, you're going to leave Instagram, go to Google, search for it, right? Find the link, add it to your car, go through that whole flow. Just the opportunity for the bot to go click here to search this and then it populating the search query for you as like a first pass where it doesn't even need mm. to connect you to another bot. Like that's meaningful because it reduces friction and, and there might be economics associated with that referral search. Maybe, maybe not. Um, at the same time, I think zooming out, it becomes pretty clear like, oh, these bots are going to talk to each other. They're going to know what each other are good at. And obviously where like plugins and that sort of world is, I think headed will, will likely be the early incarnations of it. Um, mm. And I think a lot of the, the, user preferences that are in place today where you go in, manually select the plugin, add the plugin, manually invoke the plugin. I think a lot of that will eventually become more automated where your personal chatbots that you prefer get to know you, they understand your preferences. You have something that's kind of pre-configured or set or default across all the chatbots you engage with that can be personalized for each bot if you'd like. And then, and then those bots know how to interact with you. They go, oh, Kane really does like it if we refer him out to any chatbot that can solve this problem, even if it means we have to share this, you know, 
anonymous ID on who Kane is and what we were chatting about with that bot, right? So if you like go to the analog example, if you're ever on the phone with a customer service department, you're talking to a person and they go like, oh, I'm not in the right department. You got to talk to wholesale for that. Like, let me connect you. And you go, okay, okay, but please, please, Jeff, before you do that, do, don't do anything, anything, but tell them exactly what we already talked about. The last thing I want to do is repeat the context of this 20 minute conversation that like my problem doesn't get solved. Mm-hmm. And they'll tell you every time, like, no problem. I'll definitely tell them. I'm going to tell them exactly what's going on. They'll know what's, and the moment you get connected, they're like, hello. And you're like, Hey, mm-hmm. <laughs> did Jeff tell you what's going on? And they're like, who's Jeff? And it's like, <laughs> oh my goodness. like, please like share that information. So I think we'll get to a place where most consumers will prefer for their chatbots to share some amount of conversational context with other bots for the purpose of facilitating a pleasant and easy and frictionless bot-to-bot experience. Yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. And again, it all comes back around again, doesn't it? Because like that was that was again the the idea or with Alexa is is the skill to skill transitions, and over time it would learn your preferences. I don't think the interface itself helped because voice is a lot more um, constrained in terms of being able to do that. Like having the interface over here, but then you have to go to the app to set your preferences and stuff like that. It's just really it's not really friction. It's a friction filled journey, really. Whereas at least with these other tools, you've got them on screen. And you can configure things where you're actually interacting with them. Um, but I think even even something as simple as, to go back to the GQ example, you're talking about the GQ uh, article with the basketball players with the jackets or whatever. Even if there was a way, and this is something for like your likes of Claude and OpenAI to consider is, in the same way as you would link from one website to like a... I don't know, a payment gateway or not a payment gateway because it wouldn't be very secure, but like you go from one website to another, but you pass parameters in the URL to pre-populate some data on the website. Sure. It's almost like you could take the context of a conversation, turn that into a prompt that via mm. some kind of parameter, you would go, you go from one assistant to another, but the prompt would be generated from the first assistant. And therefore, when you start the conversation with like ChatGPT, once you've been escalated from GQ, it all, it's already generated that initial prompt. So it's just a case of carrying on sort of thing. Yeah, we, um, we have a scheme internally we use in our messaging API, which allows independent chatbot publishers to take advantage of the different channels that, that we support and help them grow their audience and monetize it and stuff. Um, and anyways, as part of that, one of the things that we can do is effectively send the bot a phantom message. And so it's similar, I think, in, in conceptually to kind of what you mm. described, where we can simulate as if the user said something so we can get the bot to respond as if they did without the user having to actually send it. And there's a ton of use cases for that, actually. This just being one of them where, great, now the user doesn't have to go to that bot and type in what they want. The first bot, in theory, could leverage the same mechanism and send kind of a phantom message, right? Deliver the prompt, not just even pre-populated, or for the user, depending on their preference, pre-fill and pre-populated, depending on the environment, let them send that in so it's just a tap. Maybe not that different than how, like, SMS works often today, where you click a link, you go into an SMS experience, you have to send the message to actually start it. I think that could be an early incarnation of how this happens. Um, but over time, I think most of that is stripped away and it's probably pretty automated. Mm. Uh, we've got a comment from Wally Brill here shout out to Wally uh, summarization on customer service calls for the agents as well is a good use case that is definitely a good use case when you hand over from a, uh automated interaction to an agent we would always do that 
basically. Whenever we do handover, we provide a summary. But there's another question here uh, from, it just says LinkedIn user. So apologies, I can't give you a shout out. It's not uh, it's not coming through. Tell me who you are. But uh, the, the question is, which we've kind of alluded to a little bit, but we haven't really covered it specifically. So, and again, we're talking about hypotheticals here. We're talking like some hypothetical future where this, if, if everything kind of aligns and it keeps going the way that it goes, then this is the kind of stuff that we could be looking at doing. The question is, won't privacy issues make this more complex? What was the question, Kim? Won't privacy issues make this more complex? All this conversation about handing from one bot to another and passing over context and you know seamless integration between different assistants and different companies, will what will the role of privacy be there and, and will privacy make that reality more complex? Yeah, uh, it certainly will. We're, we are already now in a world that is much more privacy conscious and privacy oriented, which I think is a really good thing. And so no different than on the web or in any other internet environment where there's GDPR and there's CCPA and there's tons of other pending and, and newly rolled out regulation around data privacy. Um, all that's going to apply. There's going to have to be uh, new ways to connect these experiences that is one compliant with the existing policy. And I think it's very likely that there will be net new regulation and policy that's specific to conversational AI and generative AI in general. Um, and so, yeah, it'll be more complex because of privacy, but we've found ways to deliver good experiences that are also privacy centric for end users, not just as direct, like everybody in general, right? Like for the most part, social still works, websites still work, apps still work. Um, there are trade-offs on all these things, but I think a lot of the effort behind creating a more privacy-centric internet has, despite the costs and the challenges for a lot of people have to implement it, like it's not disrupted the consumer experience in any meaningful way. There's some things that I think are harder to do that have hurt the companies that are maybe incumbents. And there's definitely some stuff that has had commercial impacts, but like from an end user perspective, I do think it's all been largely positive and the onus has just fallen to us as businesses to adopt these things and implement them in the right way. And I think everybody's getting better at it too, right? Like the initial wave might've been painful for some um, and we kind of missed this, right? But I think if you were like running your business in 2014 with the way things were governed and then you had to go through the transition, that was probably pretty painful. Um, you know, at the point in time where we started this business, this stuff was already kind of inevitable. And so designing with kind of an understanding of that environment has helped. I think everybody's already there. And certainly there's pockets of, of weird experiences and weird challenges with different governments and some of the big tech players. But I don't know what it'll look like. I, I'm not sure uh, exactly what that'll play out to be, but I'm sure there's going to be some standardized way that everybody accepts as this is how I want my chatbot context to be shared with others. Yeah. And as you said, we're kind of getting there in some instances, you know, whenever you go to sign in f with one website and you, let's say you use Google to sign into something, it'll come up with a little page and it'll say, do you authorize us to look at this data in Google and stuff like that? It's kind of, yeah, it's getting there. But all, all it takes though is one issue. Like one of the reasons I know we keep talking, I don't know why we keep talking about Alexa in this instance. I think it's probably because it's closely related to the content topic because that was a big use case for Alexa. But like, when I think about what was really damaging for Amazon and even for Siri, actually, was the stories that leaked around uh, Amazon is taking audio recordings and sending it off to the Philippines and having like 
low-paid workers transcribe yeah. and, and all, this, all this sort of stuff. And that came as a surprise to people. Like, oh, my God, what's Amazon doing? Sending my data over there. You know, so it's kind of like it's that stuff where people are not really sure what's happening with the data, where it's going, yeah, who's got access to it. It's not, it's not that a company <clears throat> violated a, a policy or regulation or rules. It's that they didn't make it obvious to their actual users how their data was being used. And when the big reveal happens, it causes that kind of backlash. I'm not familiar with the specific example you're referencing. Like, I, so I don't know if it was you know, version A or version B, but I do think that's a, a huge part of it. And it, in broadly speaking, I think, especially in conversational AI, like I think most companies have been pretty thoughtful around being um, more communicative with the end user about what they're experiencing than maybe they have in, in mediums past. And so I think we're doing a better job of that as an industry. Um, and I, I do think it's going to also continue to change because new mediums require native solutions in most regard. But as an early implementation, you could certainly imagine the universal login cane that you just referenced that already exists, leveraging that for the same reason, right? And then just incorporating some chat-specific terms where necessary, if necessary. Um, you know, I'm not a lawyer or a privacy expert, but I I'm, feel pretty confident that it's going to get worked out. And I think most users outside of tech, like most people that don't work in tech, which is like the entire world pretty much, they want the best experience, right? So I think if you go stop a couple of kids on the side of the street and you're like, do you want to have Instagram or do you not want Instagram to have your data? And they're like, well, I have Instagram, right? I use TikTok. Right. Like you want the best service. You want to be personalized. You want to be relevant. And there's a reasonable way to share data to enable those things. And I think most people are comfortable with. And a lot of the issues that have not that there aren't bad actors and, and bad things that have happened and misuse and all these types of things. Um, but I think a lot of times it's just mismanaging of expectations or people not understanding how their data is being used. And sometimes that is because the company isn't very transparent. Uh, but I do think everyone's starting to do a better job on that front. Yeah. People will tend to give up whatever they're being asked to give up as long as the value they receive on the other end is adequate, you know? Think about how much data your phone has on you. It knows where you are. It knows who you're with. It knows what you search. It knows all of your information around your banks. It's got everything, you know? But you're happy to give up that because you know that it's giving you the value that you that you want, you know? like Yeah, if you were to have told me or told my parents, <clears throat> like, hey your kids are going to click a button and get into a stranger's car. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. don't never happen. Never talk to strangers. Don't get into strangers. And now we all use it all the time. And it's one of the greatest services ever. It requires one sharing your location, which everybody understands they need to do because they need the car to get to them. But also like consumer behaviors change, right? I would not have gotten into the car with a stranger before Uber with Uber. There's some trust Right. And the the general sentiment in what the technology can be used for changes. And that's a really pointed example because it's in the real world. But I, I do think that translates to digital experiences as well. Mm, definitely. Definitely. Well, Nick, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, 
definitely an enlightening conversation. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, the guy who asked the question actually is Andrew, Andrew Kaiser. Thank you, Andrew. For some reason, the streaming platform doesn't tell me who it is, but I, I just hopped on a LinkedIn there. So thank you for that. Thank you for the uh, for taking part. And uh, yeah, if you want to learn more about Direct, you can visit the website, which is direct.ai, but the Direct is spelt with a Q and not with a C. We couldn't afford the C. Yeah, we, we couldn't afford <laughs> the C. It was, it was very expensive, as you can imagine. I bet it was. Um, I bet it was. I won't say the domain name that I'm that I'm in the process of trying to get hold of, um, because it might people might try and inflate the price even more. But um, yeah, the AI domain names for the right kind of word are very expensive. <laughs> I can appreciate that. So it's d i r e q t dot ai. D-I-R-E-Q-T dot A-I if you want to learn more. And I'm sure, Nick, people can connect with you on LinkedIn and all that sort of stuff if they, uh, yeah, if they want to learn more. Perfect. We'll put all the links to all of that stuff in the show notes on the website. Uh, and so there you go. Yeah, thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Cheers, Nick. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Bye.